This Jewish History Podcast is sponsored in loving memory of Zelda Chaya Nechama by her loving family who wish to remain anonymous. We thank the anonymous family for the support of the Jewish History Podcast with Rabbi Yaakov Wolby and may the soul of Zelda Chaya Nechama merit an elevation in heaven. Before I begin, two short announcements. I am pleased to tell the audience that the Jewish History Podcast has eclipsed 200 five-star reviews on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. Thank you all who have so kindly rated us. And if you have not yet done so, please give us a five-star rating. In addition, like I mentioned last time, Torch, our organization, is giving away for free mitzvah magnets, special Shabbat light switch covers. Visit our website, torchweb.org. On the first page, on the homepage, you'll see a banner. On the banner, you click the banner, put in your information, make sure you put in the correct mailing address, and we will mail you up to five Torch Shabbat Lights with covers for free. My email address is rabbiwalbygmail.com. Thank you to the hundreds of podcast listeners that have emailed me thus far. It's so nice to hear from you. It's lovely, delightful, meaningful, gratifying to hear how you've enjoyed the various podcasts, how they've impacted you. If you've not emailed me in a while, or if you've never emailed me, shoot me an email. The email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. I thought I could have told the rest of the story of Chazanish with one more episode, but there's so many stories that I wanted to tell, I decided to split it into two episodes. This one, episode 71, and the upcoming one, please God, episode 72. The first will focus primarily on the Chazanish's efforts and activities with respect to building Torah the land of Israel, and the second is going to relate to his involvement in politics and all the difficult conflicts and tension between religious and state at the genesis, at the nascent stages of the state of Israel. In 1933, Rabbi Avram Yeshai Karelitz the moved to British Mandate Palestine. Emigrating to Palestine at the time was not easy. He had to lobby. Eventually, he managed to get immigration permits for him and for his wife. And in the summer of 1933, they embarked on the 10-day journey by rail and subsequently by sea to Palestine. Prior to his departure, the recognized leader of the Torah world, Rabbi Chaim Ozer Grzynski of Vilna, with whom the Chazanish had a very close relationship, he had sent a letter to the leaders of the Yeshuv in Palestine informing them that they are about to become the hosts of an absolute Torah giant. And he employed the classical Talmudic phraseology and wrote to them, a lion is arising from Babylon. There's going to be a tremendous force, a powerhouse, the Chazonish, Rabbi Karelitz, who's going to come and join your communities. And indeed, a respectable delegation of rabbis and community leaders arrived at the shore to greet him. It's really hard to overstate the impact that this line from Babylon will have over the Yeshuv in the land for the next 20 years. When he arrived in Palestine, he settled in the small suburb of Tel Aviv, a small agricultural town called Bnei Brak. Someone asked him, why don't you move to the more established, to the historical, to the holy city of Jerusalem, the seat of the old Yeshuv, a city replete with Torah scholars and Torah institutions. Why would you move to the dusty town of Bnei Brak? So he responded, I deeply desire to establish Torah in the desert of the new Yeshuv. And over the course of the next 20 years, that is exactly what he did. In this chapter of the story of the Chazanish, we'll see a remarkable shift 
from him studying Torah nonstop in near total seclusion, unknown to all but a select few sages, he's going to turn into a courageous, determined, vibrant, public persona who's going to lead and guide the Torah community in the land of Israel into building a robust and dynamic Torah world. You know, for someone who has been fortunate to partake in this vibrant, flourishing Torah world that exists in Israel today, it's really hard to fathom the barren wasteland of Torah that existed prior to the arrival of Chazanish in 1933. In the entire land, there was only one traditional Lithuanian yeshiva-style yeshiva, the Lamji yeshiva in Petach Tikva. And the truth was that if another yeshiva opened, there wouldn't be any students to fill it. In fact, many of the Zionist leaders who were stationed in the land were themselves former yeshiva students in Europe who had abandoned the religion in favor of Zionist activism. And more broadly, the trend worldwide in Jewry was heading in the opposite direction, people abandoning tradition and certainly abandoning the intense Torah study that takes place in yeshivas. The Mizrahi, the religious Zionist movement, they did have a strong foothold in the land, and for many religious matters, they were the only game in town. The idea of a community that had total, absolute fidelity to Torah and to Torah alone, without any Zionist streams attached, total, uncompromising commitment to Torah, that scarcely existed outside of the ancient religious communities of Jerusalem. From the first day that the Chazanish arrives in Israel, he's going to immerse himself in community matters, and he's going to set up and build the infrastructure and the culture of the future Torah world, introducing throughout the land a new stream of people and communities that have total fidelity to Torah and to Torah alone. And boy, would he have his work cut out for him. In his very hometown, the city of Bnei Brak, at the time a tiny agricultural village, maybe a thousand residents, the Chazanish was appalled to learn that there were very serious halachic violations in the conduct of the ostensibly religious populace. In this city, destined to become the epicenter of the Torah world that the Chazanish envisioned, there were otherwise Torah-observant dairy farmers milking their cows on Shabbat in a way that was not allowed by Torah law. And again, at this juncture, the Chazanish is no longer influencing passively, maybe answering questions, providing guidance to people who come to him, knocking on his door. Now, when he enters the land of Israel, he's going to take a very active role in shaping, in building the Torah community, and of course, in curbing any violations, any transgressions that he encounters. So he begins this campaign of informing and persuading the farmers to adapt their procedures and to milk their cows in a way that conforms with Torah law. He writes letters, he commissions billboards, and the practice ceases. Thenceforth, the farmers only met their cows in ways that were allowed by Torah law. And his guidance on proper Torah conduct was not limited to dairy farmers, was not limited to his hometown of B'nai Brak. There were entire bodies of agricultural laws that only apply in the biblical land of Israel, that were either unknown or ignored, or the whole community had functionally not fulfilled them because they were reliant on very questionable loopholes devised in earlier generations. With his encyclopedic Torah knowledge and his trailblazing 
and fearless and definitive approach, the Chazanish established authoritative guidance in all these laws. For example, in Israel, produce that's, gro- that's grown in Israel, there are laws relating to what's called truma and meiser. These are the various tithes, even though today they're only of rabbinic stringency. But when you plant in a land, you have to separate the tithes of that produce. And there is a certain text that you say when you take that separation of the tithes. And who composed the authoritative text of separating the tithes in the biblical land of Israel? The Chazonish. One example. The biggest example of them all is an agricultural law that was all but forgotten when the Chazonish arrived in the land. And that is the law of Shemitah. The Torah tells us that for six years, you work the field, you plant, you plow, you harvest, you engage in agricultural activities. But the seventh year, it's the year of the Shemitah, it's the sabbatical year. On that year, you allow the land to lie fallow. In 1937, so it was a few years after the Chazanish arrived in the land, it's a Shemitah year. And he discovers that this mitzvah is all but forgotten. Why? Because many decades earlier in the 19th century, there was a loophole that was conceived wherein the entire land of Israel would quote-unquote be sold to non-Jews. And this mitzvah that tells us that Jewish farmers in the biblical land of Israel cannot work the field on the seventh year, on the Shemitah year, well, that applies only to Jews. Well, if my farm happens to be owned by a non-Jew, well, then it's no problem for me to work the field. And what they developed, and it's important to stress this was done by reputable halakhic authorities, but it very it sounds questionable to us even, to sell the entire land, to quote-unquote make this wholesale of all the land and now it doesn't belong to you. Oh, and you'll buy it back at the year's end. But that's a way to facilitate that you could work the field during the Shemitah year. Chazanish had all kinds of problems with this. Of course, the sale, does that sound like a real sale? It sounds more farcical. Moreover, there's a technical problem with selling land in Israel to non-Jews. Moreover, this loophole was only intended to allow certain kinds of agricultural activities. But in practice, decades after this loophole was already in effect, the people, the farmers, were using it as a wholesale license to ignore the laws of Shemitah. So consequently, the Chazanish publicizes his opinion that this loophole is not legitimate, it's banned, and therefore we have to actually observe the laws of Shemitah. But interestingly, simultaneously, he also approved very surprising halachic leniencies to make it easier for the farmers to obey the Shemitah. Now, this led to an explosive controversy. At the time, the pioneering settlers of the land were mostly involved in agrarian activities. And therefore, the entire economy hinged upon the agriculture. And the way things always were was, yeah, the Shemitah is really not a problem because after all, we're going to sell the land to the non-Jews. We have this loophole. Now the Chazanish comes and just throws this grenade that's no longer reliable. So many proponents of that wholesale loophole, they come to lobby the Chazanish to get him to change his mind. 
So one of them argued, well, after all, Shemitah nowadays, we don't have the temple, and therefore it's only rabbinic. And therefore, come on, is it is it so important? Must you be so stringent? It's only rabbinic law. So the Chaj responded to him. He said, you know what else is only rabbinic law? Salting kosher meat. We know that to have kosher meat, you have to salt it to remove all the blood. That's only rabbinic, says the Chazanish. If someone today didn't salt their meat, you wouldn't eat by their house. You would consider all their food to be non-kosher. So suddenly, when it comes to Shemitah, if it's only rabbinic, it could be disregarded. To a second proponent of the wholesale loophole, he mentioned that that same year, 1937, was the year of the Peel Commission, the partition plan in which this breakdown of the land to create two states for two people, a Jewish state and an Arab state, was proposed. And it's ironic, says the Chazanish, that the same people who are so vociferously against splitting Israel, splitting the land of Palestine with the Arabs, they're not willing to give up an inch of biblical land to non-Jews with respect to sovereignty, but somehow they're okay with selling the entire land via this loophole to make the entire land be owned by non-Jews to work around this Shemitah problem. And it's interesting. There was another disputant who was a fan, was in favor of this wholesale loophole, and he publicly objected to the Chazanish's leniencies. Like we mentioned, the Chazanish said that the wholesale loophole is not good, but he approved all these other leniencies to enable, to facilitate people being able to observe the Shemitah. So one of the disputants said, well, we have to do the wholesale loophole because all your leniencies are invalid. And the Chazanish characterized this person as someone who wants a stringency to enable a gross leniencies. His professed stringency that all these leniencies of the Chazanish are not reliable, that was nothing more than a naked attempt to force the issue on the question of the wholesale loophole. And I think this does appear as a theme in the Chazanish's tenure as a great leader. He was someone who knew how to weigh all the factors to take everything into account before rendering a decision. I think he led with tremendous pragmatism, with wisdom to know what to make a big deal about and what was negotiable. There are certain things that he's willing to bend upon, certain things were flexible, while others were as immutable as steel and as immovable as mountains. And I think in general, there have been various approaches of Torah leaders in this respect. You have the zealots who are not willing to yield on any matter. And then you have the pragmatists who have that keen sense, that special ability to know what things are pliable, what things are negotiable, and what things are non-negotiable. The Chazanish was someone in this sense that we could characterize as a pragmatist. He showed that the Shemitah itself the big picture, were non-negotiable. We have to still observe the Shemitah, and it can be done in modern times. And he was adamant about that point. We're not going to rely on this wholesale loophole. Yet, he knew which of the astonishing leniencies were reliable to enable to facilitate that, what is flexible and what is not flexible. There was once a delegation from the other camp of the zealots who paid him a visit, And they complained 
that he was not sufficiently anti-secular Zionist. You know, if you're a leader of the Torah Jews and there's obviously lots of politics with the secular Zionists, so these zealots, they argued that the Chazanish is not sufficiently anti-the secular Zionists. And the Chazanish rebuffed them, but the students related that one of the younger members of this delegation spoke disrespectfully about the Chazanish, and he didn't make it out to live that year. He passed away that year. The Chazanish described these zealots as Jews from before Sinai. We know at Sinai, the Jewish people got the Torah. These are people who have zeal, but it's not formed, it's not molded by Torah. A second time, he described them as an alarm clock. And he said, these people know how to wake people up from their sleep. They're zealots and they're not, not willing to yield in anything. But sometimes it's important to let someone sleep in a little bit. And that was the Chazanish's skill, one of his skills, as the consummate leader of the Torah world at this time in history. He knew which issues were bendable and which were not. And like I mentioned, this was manifested in much of his leadership and much of his decision-making. So, for example, there was a town with a mixed population. Part of the town was religious, was more like in the Chazonish's camp, and part of the town was secular. And therefore, the representation of the municipality was also mixed. And therefore, there was stasis. There was gridlock. Nothing could get passed because neither camp could get a majority in any one of the votes. So a deal was proposed wherein the secular representatives, they would vote in favor of allocation of funds to build a religious school. And the religious representatives would in turn vote in favor of funds for the secular school. And the Chazanish approved that. And you may ask, well, how can religious representatives come to the Chazanish and get advice to vote for a secular school? How could you promote secular schools in the land of Israel that don't teach about Torah? Well, the Chazanish recognized in this instance, the trade-off was worth it. Well, what about mixing the curriculum in the yeshivas, having half the day Torah study, half the day secular studies? Well, to that, he was categorically opposed. What about drafting girls into national service? Well, that's something we'll talk about in the next episode. But he taught that this is something you have to die to avoid. What about the question of using electricity on Shabbos? This was an interesting question that he was faced. Now, we know that all the halachic authorities agree that initiating a halachic current, like turning on a light switch, is forbidden on Shabbos. Well, what if a light switch was turned on from before Shabbos? Well, then that's okay, right? Well, in the land of Israel, maybe not. Because who is working at the electric company? Who is working on the grid? Who is maintaining all the infrastructure to keep the electricity humming? They discovered that there were Jews who were operating the grids. And therefore, if you use electricity on Shabbat in the land of Israel, you're indirectly or maybe even directly causing other Jews to desecrate the Shabbat. Is it okay for me to cause other Jews desert the Shabbat? Chazanish said, if someone uses electricity on Shabbat, again, not turning it on, but just having it turned on from before Shabbos, that is akin to someone studying Torah on Friday night on Shabbat. 
while another Jew is illuminating his books by lighting match after match. Of course, lighting a match in Shabbat is one of the third and prohibited categories of work. It's something that is not allowed by Torah law. Is it okay for me to study Torah in a light illuminated by another Jew striking a match one after another every five seconds another match? Of course not. That's the same thing to use electricity on Shabbat in the land of Israel. So what do you do? You either use kerosene lamps. And today, in fact, almost every religious neighbor in Israel has a generator. It's deployed before Shabbat. And that way you could avoid using the grid and causing other Jews to desecrate the Shabbat. I remember when I arrived in Israel to study in Shiva, I had never heard of this idea. And I was speaking to a rabbi, and the rabbi mentioned, well, we don't use electricity on Shabbat. I'm like, what do you mean? We don't? Of course there's electricity on Shabbat. I never heard of this thing. And he extended his right hand and says, okay, welcome to Israel. This was, this was my welcome party. This idea that in the Torah conscious community of the land of Israel, the idea of using electricity on Shabbat, this was initiated by the Chazonish, is something which is anathema. What about using water on Shabbat? They discovered that that was a problem too. And therefore, the adherents, the followers of the Chazanish, people wanted to do all the mitzvahs as best as possible. They would load up water in a water tank before Shabbat to avoid any such problems. The Chazanish also spearheaded task forces to erect barriers and Shabbos gates to turn the city of Bnei Brak into a Shabbos observant city. It stopped any incoming traffic and also it made carrying within the neighborhood not a halachic problem on Shabbat. And in fact, until today, there are many neighborhoods in the land of Israel that have all kinds of barriers and gates that are deployed on Shabbat. So we see how the Chazanish is changing the face of the country, making it hospitable for Torah communities to flourish. And again, this is not localized in his town of Bnei Brak. He strove to build Torah infrastructure all over the land. He wrote and he advocated that each city must have a minimum of seven critical religious institutions. Number one, Torah school for children. Number two, a competent rabbi. Kosher food availability. A mikvah, a ritual bathhouse. A synagogue. The ability to observe Shabbat unmolested and enough religious freedom and sovereignty that the secular government does not interfere with the religious practices of the constituents. Beyond the minimum requirements in each city, the Chazanish believed that the foundation of this new Jewish nation in the land of Israel is going to be the building of yeshivos, of advanced Talmudic institutions all over the land. Like we mentioned, when he arrived in Israel, there was a near total dearth of Torah institutions. But thanks to his leadership and vision and hard work and handiwork and cadres of followers that he deployed, empires of Torah spattered up in every corner of the land. In fact, Chazanish himself was personally involved in building hundreds of such institutions. The epicenter of this new world was, as we mentioned, the city of Bnei Brak. In Bnei Brak, he established Torah elementary schools independent of government control, yeshiva high schools, advanced yeshiva institutions, schools for girls, kolels for scholars post-marriage. The centerpiece of the Torah infrastructure in this City is the famed Panovich Yeshiva. The Chazanish was vital in securing the land for the building. He was present at the cornerstone ceremony when they 
began the construction of the building, and he would visit the yeshiva occasionally to give lectures, and he would also visit each Simchas Torah. When Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Sher, the head of the Slabatka yeshiva back in Europe, of course, that was destroyed. When he arrived in Israel, the Chazanish encouraged him to open up his yeshiva, to reopen up the Slabatka yeshiva in Bnei Brak too, and he also aided it in its founding. And the question that was posed is, wait a minute, there is a law that states that you cannot encroach upon someone else's territory. If I have a store, it would be improper and maybe even a violation of Torah law for someone else to open up an identical store next door. You're encroaching on someone else's territory. Well, does that apply for Torah institutions? If I have a yeshiva, can someone else open a yeshiva next door? Maybe it's a problem. That was the question that was posed to the Chazanish. And the Chazanish said, you're right. Normally, you know, if there's a mall and there's only one shoe store, it's improper to open up a second shoe store in that same mall. But what if there's a marketplace? What if there is an expo of shoes? Everyone's just selling shoes while in a marketplace. That's what people come for. They come to buy those shoes. Similarly, if this was a regular town and there's only one yeshiva, well, maybe then it would be improper to open up a second yeshiva that's going to compete. It's going to encroach upon the territory of the first yeshiva. But here, in Bnei Brak, it's going to be a marketplace of Torah. And therefore, the more yeshivos, the better. Indeed, there are dozens and dozens of yeshivos in this marketplace of Torah, the city of Bnei Brak. Moreover, the Chazanish said and taught and prophesied that Bnei Brak is going, is going to be a fortress of Torah. And he promised that no matter what happens in any war, in any conflict, the city of Bnei Brak will be safe. During the Yom Kippur War, of course, that happens 20 years after Chazanish passes, there was a yeshiva student in the city of Bnei Brak who was American, and he was so worried about the war, he wanted to go back to the United States. He wanted to go back to safety in America. And the stipler gone, Rabbi Kanievsky, the brother-in-law of the Chazanish, told him that the Chazanish promised that no matter how many missiles fall upon the state of Israel, the land of Israel, the city of Bnei Brak is a fortress of Torah, it won't be hit. And again, as we mentioned, the Chazanish did not limit his Torah-building activities to the city of Bnei Brak. All over the land, he spearheaded the opening of dozens of institutions rooted in this vision that he had of the land of Israel, revived, blossoming, bursting with Torah, Torah dominating every aspect of the lives and the culture of the people. And like we mentioned, he personally participated in the founding of the majority of the yeshivas that sprung up in the new yeshuv. A wealthy man once approached him and asked him, which yeshiva is yours? He wanted to make a donation. He wanted to give it to the Chazonisha's yeshiva. So the Chadish responded, which yeshiva is mine? All the yeshivos are mine. The Chazanish also advocated the opening of independent Torah schools all over the country. What does it mean independent? It means it has, has no government oversight at all. Why do you need to have independent schools? Why do you need to have schools free of any government control? After all, it's much more expensive. And at the time, the government tolerated a track of religious schools on the government's dime, and you would only need to have a few compromises to make the government happy. 
So the Chadish responded, and this is indicative of his philosophy and the philosophy that seeped into the culture that he created. He said, the perspective of the yeshiva is to produce Torah giants, not the average folk, the one in the thousand that becomes the transformational luminary, the transformational scholar and sage. And then he added, nearly every student that enters, that goes into elementary school, can be of that caliber. And therefore, we have to design our institutions that they are conducive for such a pupil emerging. And therefore, we have to have total oversight, total say in how we design our institutions to facilitate this luminary emerging from our institutions. Someone asked him, why don't we make a yeshiva dedicated for absolute geniuses. You know, if someone is a tremendous genius, tremendous intellectual cognitive capacities, well then they're on the fast track to become a great Torah scholar. Let's make yeshiva designed only for the gifted. Seems like a pretty logical proposal. So the Chazanish responded, he says, you don't get it. Every child, nearly every child that enters elementary school can become the transformational leader. Some of them, of course, are going to be people that were endowed with genius level, with prodigious intellect. But he pointed to some of the great Torah leaders of the past, and he said, not all of the great Torah leaders of the past were necessarily cognitively gifted. And therefore, we're not going to make a choice. We're not going to create these tracks as if to say, we know who is going to emerge I want to tell a personal story that happened with my grandfather when my grandfather founded his yeshiva in the city of Be'er Yaakov. My grandfather grew up in Germany, and as a youth, he was part of the Ezra Zionist youth movement in Berlin in in Germany. And in 1948, my grandfather is already in the land of Israel. He was approached by leaders of the Ezra Zionist youth movement he was approached to open up a yeshiva in the city of Be'er Yaakov, and they were going to support it. So initially, he totally objected. He said, who am I? I'm going to open up a yeshiva. I'm not a good candidate to do that. But someone told him, you know, if you don't do it, someone else who's way worse than you is going to do it. So they decided to go visit the Chazonish. Chazonish asked my grandfather one question. In this yeshiva, are there going to be secular studies? Is it going to be a real yeshiva that's just focusing on Torah and Talmud and that subject and Judaics? Or is it going to have also, you know, half the day secular studies? So my grandfather said, no, it's going to be total Torah. If so, says the Chazanish, go ahead with it and you'll take your students and turn them into Torah scholars. So in October of 1948, he opened up his yeshiva with a few students. And things were very difficult the money was tight. It was very difficult to recruit students. And at the time, there's this huge influx of immigrants coming, many of them, you know, orphans and refugees after the Holocaust. They're all inundating the new nascent state of Israel. And the Chazanish instructed him to accept into his yeshiva several 10-year-old refugee students. And he said to him, you know, yeshiva can only be built on siyata can only be built on divine assistance. You have to create the room for this siyata for the divine assistance to take hold. You have to do something above and beyond your comfort zone, accept these students, accept these refugee students, and that will allow the yeshiva to flourish. 
Meanwhile, the Ezra folks, they realized that my grandfather was not the guy that they thought he was. He was not going to advance their ideology. So they pulled their support from the yeshiva. But thanks to the Chazanish's intervention, they left the yeshiva and they pulled their financial support, but they left one small set of shas, one small set of Talmud, 10 beds, 10 plates, 10 spoons, and 10 forks, and they left. And things were so dire that my grandfather went to the Chazanish and he told him that he has no solution but to close down the yeshiva. Things were so bad, things were so tight, he had to close down the yeshiva. So the Chazanish gave him tremendous encouragement. And he said, no, you're wrong. There is no doubt that this is going to be a wonderful flowering yeshiva. And don't allow that doubt to seep into your heart. And then he told him, the water has to go all the way down. Things have to get so bad, and only then can the sea rise. And then he told him, come back in a few days. And he came back a few days later to Bnei Barat, to the Chazanish. And the Chazanish gives him an envelope. This is an astonishing thing. This really shows you what kind of leadership we're talking about. The Chazanish at that time is the undisputed Torah leader of the Jewish world. My grandfather was an almost unknown 36 or 37-year-old rabbi. And you have the Chazanish going to fundraise to get this yeshiva off the ground. And that nudge, that little little push helped the yeshiva get its grounds, get its legs, and eventually the yeshiva became one of the standout yeshivas in the land of Israel. It produced thousands of Torah scholars, of Torah luminaries. My grandfather himself was there for 35 years and moved to Jerusalem in 1983. In fact, today, there is still a yeshiva in Beriakov with hundreds of students. Again, all this is just one example of the investment, the Herculean investment the Chazanish invested to get the yeshiva ecosystem off the ground. Rabbi Shach, who eventually became the head of the yeshiva in Panovich and became the Chazanish's successor as the leader of the Torah community in the land of Israel, when they arrived, when he arrived from Europe to the land of Israel, the family was penniless. And he was hired to give a lecture, to give a shir, to teach Talmud in a certain yeshiva in Tel Aviv. But the problem was, this was not the yeshiva, the kind of which the Chazonish really envisioned. This was a yeshiva that was open to secular studies. It wasn't exactly the yeshiva that's total dedication to Torah. But the family was so destitute, they were so poor, he took the job nonetheless. And he felt a little bit uneasy, so he decided to go visit the Chazonish. Should he maintain his employment in this kind of yeshiva? So Chazanish tells him, I say, I know what you're thinking. You're worried that your responsibility to feed your family with a decent salary requires you to stay there. And if you leave, then when you get to heaven, they're going to punish you for not supporting your family sufficiently. Well, here's the deal. I will absorb any judgment that you have. Go resign. We'll find you a different job in a proper yeshiva. You resign. And if there's any problems in heaven, I I bear the brunt of that responsibility. So Rabbi Shach tells him, okay, I'm going to resign. But first, let me go tell my family of my decision. Chazanish says, no, absolutely not. 
Don't go home. Go straight to the school. Go straight to the yeshiva and resign. Because what's going to happen? You're going to go home and you're going to tell your wife and you're going to look at your kids and there's the risk of real starvation. You have to go straight to yeshiva. Don't go home first. So indeed, he listened and he went straight to yeshiva and he tendered his resignation. So the leader of that institution, he assumed this was a ploy to get a raise. So right away, he offered to double his salary. But Rabbi Shach said, no, this resignation has nothing to do with money. And he resigned. And soon afterwards, they moved to Jerusalem and he accepted a different job, a job that paid only 4% of what he was making or what he was offered to make after they doubled his salary. But things eventually worked out for him and he became one of the great Torah leaders of the century. I think this theme really dominates the world that Chazanish built. Every child can be a potential Torah luminary, and we have to organize and orient and set up our institutions so that that can happen. There was once a delegation of rabbis that had an appointment with Chazanish, and they arrive at his home, at his office, and he's busy. And normally he was a very punctual man. And they're waiting 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. 45 minutes later, the door opens and the Chazanish emerges and he has a a small yeshiva boy. And when the meeting begins, when the meeting convenes, the Chazanish tells the assembled rabbis, he says, this yeshiva boy does not have a yeshiva to study in. And therefore, it's our collective responsibility to create an environment for him to flourish, to study with him. My job in this case was to study with him. And your job in this case was to wait. I think that that shows, again, every child, when you're dealing with a child, it's not just another kid. You know, there's thousands of them, you know. What difference does it make if you lose a couple here or there? Every child you have to treat as this child has the potential to become the greatest Torah Lumine of the generation, and therefore we cannot forfeit on any one of them. A student once asked the Chazanish, how many hours should they study during the vacation, during the Benazmanim, of course, there's the semesters where the yeshiva is active, and then there's the time between the semesters where it's vacation. How many hours should he study? So he responded, well, not so much. Just four hours in the morning and four hours in the afternoon. For us, we look around and say, four hours, more, eight hours a day? If only the people that were in yeshiva during the semester were studying eight hours a day. But that's the attitude. The attitude is we're creating a new culture, a new world, a new ecosystem that's producing Torah giants. And a Torah giant doesn't happen when someone takes several months off the year to go vacation and go party. you got to study for eight hours a day. In fact, I know people. When I was in Yeshiva in Israel, I'm, I know people. I was friends with people that would indeed study Torah during the breaks, during the vacation, between the semesters for eight hours a day. To another person, he told, every day you have to study for 12 hours. Why? Because the Rambam, when the Rambam talks about a working person, a working person, someone who has a regular job, they need to study Torah only for nine hours a day. Well, that's for someone who has a different job. But if your job, if your profession, if your occupation is Torah study, well, then it's got to be for 12 hours a day. Another interesting example of the Chazanish's guidance to yeshivos was the very controversial switch from Hebrew to Yiddish. Today, it's almost non-existent in an Israeli yeshiva to find people speaking Yiddish. For centuries, of course, 
Yiddish was the lingua franca of the Jewish people. And the revival of modern Hebrew was considered by many in the Chazanish's camp to be taboo because it was associated with the secular Zionists. And in fact, before the war, there was very fierce resistance from the Torah true community to acknowledge this new language. Modern Hebrew is associated with the Zionists. It's anathema to us. But the Chazanish argued, now the times have changed. The battlefield has shifted. We cannot be fighting yesterday's war. Yesterday's war was about this culture issue. Now we have to adopt Hebrew. That's the language that the Hizner grow up speaking. That's the language that they're comfortable with. That's the language that the yeshivas are going to operate in. I think another aspect of his perspective is the idea of influencing people can only happen with love. My grandfather used to always say that he told the Chazonish that it used to be that if you were strict, if you were tough, it would be efficacious. But now pedagogy is only with love. That's what he told the Chazonish and the Chazonish nodded in agreement. He once told a student of his, the Misha says, you should be a student of Aaron who loves people and brings them close to Torah. The only way you can influence someone, the only way you could influence a student, a child, a neighbor, a relative, a friend, the only way you can influence someone to become close to Torah is only if you love them and you use that love to influence him. And that was the attitude, like we mentioned last time, he was such a warm person. Every person that came to him and his home was open to all, people would come day and night seeking blessings, guidance, asking questions, asking him to pray for them, asking for advice and how to deal with all their dilemmas of their lives. And the Chazish would greet them all with a smile and would speak to them as if they're friends. And he would speak with tremendous humility, softly, in a barely audible voice, as if he was almost embarrassed that people came to him for advice. But he became the address for all the difficult questions facing the Torah community. He himself writes that there is a certain degree of prophecy. It's not the prophecy of yore. It's something called maybe Ruach HaKodesh, which means like the divine spirit, divine inspiration. It's a certain depth of understanding that gives someone a higher level of knowledge And he would advise people and everyone who would come to him would just be amazed at the wisdom, at the cleverness, at the foresight of his advice. And his contemporaries would even say that in times of the temple, when someone had a question, you go to the prophet. When someone has a question, maybe after prophecy ended, you go to the high priest and you ask him to question his breastplate which is one of the parts of the garments of the high priest, that was like a stand-in for prophecy. The Chazonish is the Urim Vitumim, is, is that prophecy of our generation. And he himself wrote that in every generation, there is a leader that the Almighty, so to speak, sends to be the appropriate leader for that generation. And their words and their blessings and their advice carries tremendous weight. And if they give a blessing, invariably it's going to happen. They're going to have this higher level of premonition, of clairvoyance, of maybe, shall we say, prophecy to be able to guide their flock, to guide their generation. His niece, 
the sister of Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky, who today is considered to be the leader of the Torah community in Israel, really around the world. So his niece would travel every day to Tel Aviv to study each day. One day, the Chazanish tells his sister, today, don't send your daughter to school. Don't send her to Tel Aviv. And that same day, a bomb was detonated in the central bus station in Tel Aviv. And of course, his niece stayed home. She didn't go to Tel Aviv that day and she was saved. This is just one example of many that showed his uncanny ability to have this level of insight to give this guidance to those that came to ask for guidance. Now, the Hazanish's efforts to reach out and to grow the Torah community in the land of Israel was not limited to those who were already religious and those who were already Torah conscientious. He advocated outreach to the secular majority. In fact, right when he landed in the land of Israel, he imported 2,000 mezuzahs from Vilna and he instructed his students to go give them out door to door. We're in the land of Israel. We have our Jewish brethren. It's time for them to put their mezuzahs on their door. He taught that the secular Jews of today should be viewed as villains, as ardent secularists who seek to dismantle Torah. No, they ought to be viewed as children who were taken captive away from their home and away from their heritage. And we must reach out to them with ropes of love. Our responsibility is not to rebuke them. It's not to admonish them, rather to love them, to empathize with them, and to try to bring them back in the fold. There was once a family that had a child that was veering away from Torah. And the father agreed to buy this child a car on condition that he promises not to drive the car on Shabbat. But the son refused to give that promise. So the fighting and the tension just exacerbated. When the Chazanish heard about this situation, he told the father, he says, you go buy your son a car with no strings attached, without any conditions, because your job is to influence your child to bring him back in the fold. And that can only be done with love. And therefore, your responsibility right now is to give him love, to empathize with him, and not to try to compel him with religious compulsion. Oftentimes, secular Jews would visit him as well. There was once a story of a rabbi in a neighboring town, the town of Petach Tikva. A rabbi had a constituent, a non-religious, a secular constituent, who was having a very hard time having children. Every time the wife would become pregnant, she would suffer a miscarriage. And they were so depressed and they were so sad with the situation, they went to their rabbi and their rabbi brought them to the Chazanish. And the Chazanish advised them to go inspect the mezuzah on their doorpost. And they inspected the mezuzah and they found that the sentence that reads, in order that your life should be extended and the life of your children should be extended, there was a mistake and the word was crossed off. The word your children was crossed off. And the Chazanish tells them, okay, well, you want to have children. You got to make sure that when it says, when it talks about your children and your mezuzah, there's nothing wrong with that word. So they fetched the mezuzah, they got a new one, and indeed, soon afterwards, the family had a child. So this rabbi, he runs back to the Chazanish, and he tells him, you had this golden opportunity. 
Instead of telling them about the mezuzah, you should have told them, keep the Shabbos, observe Torah, observe the mitzvahs, and then you'll have children. And you know what? If you gave them that blessing, it would have worked. Why didn't you do that? So the Chazish answered them. He says, our job is to positively influence them, but we're not here to proselytize. We are not merchants selling, hawking products of God. We do what we can and we're going to influence them with love. Now, even though the Chazanish himself and his, the people that worked for him, they were involved in all kinds of outreach, all manners of reaching out to the secular majority, he dissuaded the Torah students, the yeshiva students, from partaking in any matter of public activism and community involvement. And he said to them, very interesting, he said to them, your job as a yeshiva student is to just study Torah. That's it. And you know what? When you study Torah with intensity, with diligence, nonstop, that is going to influence the Jews around us. It'll influence you, it influence the people who you're involved with, your family, your community, but really the entire Jewish nation, the entire Jewish people will be influenced by you studying Torah. You could be in your building, in your yeshiva building, in the study hall, studying Torah, and you have no idea what kind of effect that's going to ripple throughout the entire land. How can you influence your Jewish brethren? By studying Torah with intensity. I think this is very relevant to the discussion that we're going to have in the next episode about the question of sending yeshiva students to the army we know ever since the state was founded, there's been an exemption for yeshiva students. One of the arguments is this point, that when a yeshiva student studying Torah with diligence, with commitment, with intensity, it's actually going to benefit not only them, but the entire Jewish nation at large. The theme that the Chazanish lived by, that you can only influence people with love, it really covered every aspect of his leadership. One example Chazanish, of course, was building Torah infrastructure throughout the land. And one of the things that he built was mikvos, was ritual bathhouses. Chazanish himself was directly responsible for building no less than 93 mikvos around the country. He said, you, you want to influence people to be more cognizant, to be more aware of the laws of family purity. How are you going to do that? You're going to bring in someone to give a lecture? You're going to bring in someone to give a speech? No. The best way to influence someone and to teach people about the importance and the sensitivity of the laws of marital purity is by making a modern spa-like mikvah. You build a modern, clean, efficient, beautiful mikvah, you do that, well, then you're on your way towards influencing people in the question of marital purity. My grandfather was once participating in a convention of rabbis where the question of how to influence people with with marital purity, how do you teach orphan brides about marital purity? So one of the rabbis suggested, well, let's rent out a hall and let's bring a famous orator and let the orator speak about it. So my grandfather argues, says, no, that's not going to work. The people who want to observe the laws of family purity, well, they'll, they'll observe it even without that speech. And the people that don't want to observe it or are not aware about it, well, then they're not even going to show up to the speech. And therefore, that's not the solution. Instead, my grandfather proposed to create a foundation, an endowment, where money and provisions will be given to orphan brides. 
And when the orphan brides come to get their money for their for their wedding, there'll be someone there who would explain to them these laws in a way that it will be more palatable than if it was just told by some fiery speech. And they went to the Chazanish, and of course the Chazanish agreed with my grandfather, which is what they did. Chazanish was involved in so many areas of kindness. He married off more than 100 orphan Holocaust survivors. He helped widows. He helped the less privileged, the unfortunate, with unmatched kindness, in total secrecy, always hidden, always behind the scenes, always in a clandestine way. There was a rabbi that the Chazanish was involved with in doing some mitzvah matter. And this rabbi told Chazanish, well, I want to study Torah, and I'm worried that I'm involved in this matter of kindness, and I'm going to have less time to study Torah. And the Chazanish said to me, you have it all wrong. It's not, it's not the way it works. Torah is not a discipline like any other discipline. The more kindness that a person does, the bigger receptacle for Torah they become. You think that by doing kindness with others, by helping others, by doing mitzvot, you're going to forfeit in your Torah? Quite the contrary. That's going to enable you to become a better receptacle, a better vessel of Torah. My grandfather commented, that whoever was privy to the Chazanish's kindness no longer had a doubt on the divinity of Torah. Of course, the Chazanish was a gargantuan Torah scholar, the biggest in the generation, but he was also the greatest kind person. He was like Abraham, who, who was great in two apparently conflicting fields, in Torah and his connection with God, and in kindness, his connection to other people. In addition, it's important to stress, he still maintained that personal touch. It wasn't like he was heading an empire and was withdrawn from the masses. Rabbi Shlomo Lawrence, who was a Knesset member that was very close to the Chazanish, he is going to be featured prominently in our next episode, Please God, because he was very involved in all the political dealings as a representative of the Chazanish and as a representative of the Torah community in the Knesset. So he's going to be featured in next episode. But he tells over the story that in the year 1951, he had contracted typhus. And the reason for that was because there were these massive transit camps where all the new immigrants flooding into the land would be stationed. And there was lots of illness and disease in those places and he contracted typhus. So he had to be hospitalized. So his wife went to the Chazanish before Yom Kippur to ask him if her husband, if Rabbi Lawrence, this member of the Knesset, if he should fast on Yom Kippur. And he asked a bunch of questions and the Chazanish ruled that he must eat the day before Yom Kippur. Rabbi Lawrence tells the story. He gets a visitor in the hospital. Who's there? It's the Chazanish himself. This was apparently a very long roundabout and time-consuming trip. Why did he come? He said to them, I knew you would listen to me. I knew you would not fast. You would eat on Yom Kippur. But I was worried that you're going to be sad. You're going to be distressed. You're going to feel like I forced you to violate the laws of Yom Kippur. I want you to know that just as it's a great mitzvah to fast on Yom Kippur when you're healthy, in this case, when you're sick, when you're ill, it's a great mitzvah for you to eat. And with that, he wished him 
a Gemara Chasimah Tova. He wished him to have a happy, healthy, sweet new year. And he left again. This is the leader of the Jewish people, the figurehead of the whole community. And he's going to visit a young activist in the hospital, the Ephraim Kippur, to encourage him in the fact that he's going to have to violate the laws of Kippur by not fasting. My grandfather, blessed memory, he used to always muse that one of his dreams was to write 10 parallel biographies. And each each book would have a biography of a great Torah leader and a great leader from the rest of the world, from the Gentile world, from the world at large. And he would compare the great Torah leader with the counterpart. So he said he wanted to write a biography comparing the Chazonish to Albert Schweitzer. You could Google him, a very impressive personality who did a lot of great things for society. But he stressed the difference was everything the Chazonish did was done with absolute modesty, was done to try to hide the impact of his work. And everything he did it was all distributed in a way that no one knew how many people he married off. No one knew how many shivas he started. No one, no one knew how many institutions he founded because everything he did with absolute utmost modesty and quietness. Whereas the other guy indeed did great things, but everything was plastered on billboards. Everything had to be on the headlines. Everyone had to know about everything. Indeed, when we read about the story, when we learn about the story of Chazanish, we see how one man essentially – comes to the land with determination, with vision, willing to put in all that work to build empires of Torah throughout the land, to build the infrastructure, to build the yeshivas, the schools, everything to make the Torah community flourish and grow. And indeed today, we are witnessing the fruits of his labor. In the next episode of the Jewish History Podcast, we'll discuss the very interesting, very controversial, and even relevant questions of religion and state, the very important political decisions of the Chazonish. He had a very famous meeting with Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion. We'll talk about that. Again, my email address is rabbiwalbejima.com. Five-star reviews are appreciated on Apple Podcasts and on iTunes. And again, visit torchweb.org and order your free Torch Shabbat Light Switch covers. We'll ship them to you for free. Thanks again. This is Rabbi Yaakov Volby coming to you from the Torch Center. And until next time, shalom from Houston, Texas.